this morning as we, uh, we're only two more weeks now in the Psalms before we return to Mark as we move into the fall. And so we'll be looking at Psalm 8 this week, and then next week's Psalm will be Psalm 9 before we um, return to Mark. So if you want to go ahead and look in the, the worship folder, or if you brought your copy of God's Word, you can flip over to Psalm 9. I will read that for us in just a moment. But let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a chance to gather around this Word. We pray that you will help us through the Spirit to be good students, just as Josh has already prayed for us. We pray that in your name. Amen. All right, if you want to go ahead and stand, I'm going to read God's Word for us, Psalm 8. This is a Psalm of David. He writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and you've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You may be seated. As we look at this psalm together this morning, uh, it's a psalm of David and it's a psalm of praise, but the vast majority of what David writes here, what he communicates, is actually about him wrestling with his own humanity kind of understanding who he is in light of who God is. Uh, and then that has sent me on kind of a, uh, a rabbit trail this week as I was um, looking for how people answer the question, uh, what does it mean to be human? How do people wrestle with their humanity? And actually the Smithsonian, it's the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History has an, like an online form submission uh, where they're just collecting and have been for quite some time answers to that question. Folks can just submit their own comments, their own thoughts. And so I'm just going to share a couple of those with you. Uh, well, the first one I will share is this is from Keisha in Virginia Beach. When asked the question, what does it mean to be human? She said, to be a bipedal, socially oriented, oxygen-dependent, oxygen self-aware, organic mass of molecules that has the ability to question the world around us. So that's her understanding of being human. Uh, Anne from Baltimore had a, a similar yet more edgy take. She said, what does it mean to be human? It means to be a self-important monkey dressed up in clothes that thinks the universe cares about one's personal life or plight. And then Sean had a little less edge. Sean from New Mexico said, to be human is to be no different from any other life on this planet and know it. And then my, my favorite, this is from Olive in Wisconsin. She only used three words. What does it mean to be human? It means to love cats. That's what it means to be human. Uh, and as I consider Olive's take on humanity, I realize that if Olive really, which I don't believe that Olive actually believes that to be human is to love cats, but if she did believe that, that would really bring into question my own personal humanity at that point. Uh, but uh, I'm willing to grow in that area. Now, there were some folks who put some submissions about uh, relationships with God and being uh, created by God and you know, ordained to, to glorify God. So there were some uh, some evangelical Christians who also did some form submissions. But by and large, uh, it was a self-assessment 
that didn't include any discussion of being image bearers of God, uh, no humanity tied to, no understanding of humanity tied to God himself. And David actually shows us here in this psalm that it's actually a pretty good exercise for you and I to take some time every now and then and wrestle with our own humanity in light of who God is, in connection with who God is. And so that's what we're going to do this morning here in Psalm 8. And you'll notice in Psalm 8, the way that David starts here, before he starts thinking about what it means for him to be human, he starts with God. He begins by, by praising God. He starts at verse 1 with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He actually ends the psalm with that exact same phrase in the last stanza of this poem. Uh, and John Calvin, when he wrote the, the Institutes, which is like his seminal work, uh, he actually starts his systematic theology text with a discussion of, you, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. But without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Those two are interrelated. To know ourselves devoid of God is not to know ourselves at all, but to make some type of construct of God that is not uh, informed by our own experience of not being God is actually going to be uh, kind of foundless, uh, foundationless as well. But here's where he lands. He says, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. And David shows us here that Calvin's right. And we, we need to look to God if we want to rightly understand who we are. Any concept of who we are, what we're about, what this world is about, the meaning of all of this that isn't connected to God is actually going to lead us down the wrong path. It's not going to be any type of true self-discovery or knowledge. And so in verse 1, we have David starting with God. And then even in verse 2, at the end of verse 1, he says, you've set your glory above the heavens. In verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. We don't know exactly what David had in mind, but as one commentator put it, David has in mind some type of experience where he watched the, uh, someone who was powerless overmaster someone who was powerful. And they did so because of their relationship to and their respect for God. And so that's what David has in mind here. And so a key takeaway for you and for me as we just get started is that there's only one true framework through which we're ever going to understand ourselves and our world, and that's a God-centered framework. Without it, there is no true knowledge for us. We're never going to rightly understand anything. And after the fall, after Adam and Eve fell and they rebelled against God, we have, like Adam and Eve, tried to, uh, in a sense, We've tried to make sense of ourselves and of our world, and we've longed to do it independent from God. We want there to be a, an explanation for who we are, why we are, and why we do what we do independent from God, because we want to be a king unto ourselves. And so we've been fighting against this from the very beginning. And all that's ever happened in every, every iteration of humanity as we have tried to discover ourselves and explain ourselves and live our lives independent from God, all that's done is clouded our understanding and damaged all of our relationships. Every relationship. Our relationship with God damaged because we don't want to live a God-centered life. Our relationship with one another damaged because we don't want to live a God-centered life. We want to live a, a me-centered life that leverages people for us. Our relationship with creation, all of creation, damaged because we don't have a God-centered perspective on life. Because we want to leverage all of creation for ourselves instead of seeing ourselves in light of who God says we are, as we'll see here in Psalm 8. So a quick question for you and me. 
Is my framework a framework where my, I see myself, my life, all of my understandings, it's shaped by God? Or am I one of those many, many, many comfortable Christians who is Christian, a Christian on Sunday and has a, a bumper sticker, if you do bumper stickers, some of us are not bumper sticker people, but if you do, it may have a Christian bumper sticker, or you have some affiliation on Facebook or social media, but the reality is you don't think of your life and you don't think of your choices as being uh, in relation to God. They're not God-centered choices. He's actually just a token badge that you carry. And the reality is all of us, if you're a comfortable Christian, which is what we are, we haven't actually been tested and when we haven't been tested, there is a temptation for us to actually just be token in our God-centeredness. We need to ask the Spirit to actually root us in that. So our understanding of ourselves and our world is based, like, like David's is here, with the understanding that our God is majestic. And that shapes how I see myself and how I interact with my world. Now, what I want us to see as we move forward, if we have this foundational concept that we have to start with God, then all the statements we're going to make from here forward are going to be because of my God. Because that's what David does, essentially. He says, oh, Lord, how majestic are you? And then he relates everything to that majestic Lord. So essentially, because of my God, all that will follow. And so the first thing I want us to consider is because of my God, if we follow David here, I'm incredibly valued. Only because of my God am I incredibly valued. But also, because of my God, I'm incredibly valued. This statement is grounded in who God is and what he's done. Verses 3 and 4 say this, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And so we have David here wrestling with the immensity and the beauty of God's creation, and he knows that God's creation actually points back past itself and points to its creator, and that humbles David when he considers it. You've probably had experiences like this. I had one when I uh, took a trip to the Grand Canyon. Actually, I was going out west, taking a trip with a, a bunch of students, and we only had four hours at the Grand Canyon, which is woefully insufficient for the Grand Canyon. But we did at least um, have those four hours at sunset, which is probably the best way to use four hours. And so we watched the sunset over the Grand Canyon, absolutely gorgeous. It's awe-inspiring. Uh, and then as we're walking back to our van, we're walking through a parking lot that's been blocked off, and there's actually an astronomy club that's set up there, and there's just people all over with their telescopes, all excited, because I think it was Venus that was incredibly clear that night or something like that. And these pleasant Arizona people start inviting us uh, to come and look in their telescopes. And so we've just looked at the beauty of the Grand Canyon, and we're seeing the cosmos, and as we drove away, an elk walked in front of our van. It's like amazing, absolutely amazing. It was like the best four hours that you could have in North Arizona, right there. And that moment was one of these moments like David's talking about, where you, you, just the vastness of it. What are we that God would care about us when we think of the vastness of his creation and the beauty of it? And if we stop there, if David stopped right there, all he would be doing is saying, imagine, can you, can you even fathom how great God is? Now go enjoy your existential crisis. Like that's essential, essentially what he'd be saying. God is amazing, and we are worthless. Go and ponder. But he doesn't stop there. He goes from verse 4 right into verse 5. Yet you have made him, us, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. And so what we see here is that we're created in God's image as his image bearers, which means he's vested in us from creation value. He's determined to, to deal with us and to give us value. 
we're crowned with glory and honor, which means that we're not self-made, means that our glory and our honor are gifts, but that doesn't lessen them. The fact that we didn't earn glory, the fact that we didn't earn honor, but that God just chose to condescendingly, in, the, in a positive sense, give love and value to us, should actually comfort our hearts, even as it humbles us. It's only our pride that tells us that if, if my value is unearned, then it's somehow tainted. Uh, Hillary and I have been reading a handful of Enneagram books this summer, because it's summer for reading, I suppose. Uh, and I've, I'm an Enneagram 5. If you're an Enneagram person, you know what that means. If you're one of the many who are not, uh, Google it. Uh, it will, uh, you'll understand me so much better when you find out all my quirks on the, online. Uh, but as an Enneagram 5, uh, I want to be self-reliant. I don't want anybody's help. Like, I had to borrow my father-in-law's uh, chainsaw, and Hillary had to like, essentially force me to because I would rather buy my own chainsaw than borrow someone's, even though I just need to use it once, just the one time. I have no plans of using it again. I'd still rather buy it. I'd rather drive around for two hours, not lost, than stop and ask somebody for directions. Like, I just don't want to rely on anyone. So be, to be told that my glory and my honor have nothing to do with me, they've just been given to me, that's actually really hard for me. And it makes me want to treat it as if it's not actually as valuable. But to tell the one who loves us, your love is actually not that valuable to me, is so incredibly offensive. God says to us, I've crowned you with glory and honor. You are valuable to me. And that should lead us to a place of worship and rest. And so I want you and I to remember we're crowned with honor and glory. We are, we are those who have been declared valuable by the one who loves us. And then David goes on from there. So he says, not, because of my God, I'm incredibly valued. But then uh, he goes on and also shows us that because of our God, we also have purpose. Dostoevsky-ish, uh, he's from Russia. Well, he's dead now. He was from Russia. Uh, he is credited with saying this, the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. And that idea of having purpose is so important for human experience and for human flourishing. And that's because God designed us for purpose. God intended us to exist with purpose. And David shows us here from the beginning, we have been given glory and honor and purpose. Verse 6 tells us um, that you've given him, humanity, dominion over the works of your hands. God's made us stewards over his creation. In other words, everything belongs to God, yet he's determined that he's going to let us execute and exercise authority over us. He's going to, uh, over it. He's going to let us enjoy and nurture and rule over his creation. He's given us that opportunity. He's given us that call. And he shows us then in more detail what that looks like in the second half of verse 6 all the way through 8. He says, you've put all things under humanity's feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. We are stewards of all of creation. And that means that every man, every woman, every child has been given this shared purpose, this shared responsibility. We're supposed to serve the Lord by caring for and nurturing and overseeing all of his creation. He gave us this world to care for it, to have authority over it, to enjoy it. Every one of us has that responsibility. 
Uh, some of you all know that I, I picked up a new hobby a couple years ago. I started fly fishing. I'm really not very beautiful in the practice of it, but I really enjoy it. And one thing that I really appreciate about fly fishing culture is if you watch enough fly fishing videos, which I do, uh, you'll find that a lot of people who fly fish end up falling in love with rivers and lakes and mountains and nature. And so there's just a, a strong sense of conservation that goes along with that subculture. Now, sometimes it's just conservation for conservation's sake. But I still appreciate when people see something beautiful, see something that needs to be protected, and then long to protect it. Because that's stewardship. That's what it looks like to be a steward. Like, as Christians, we should be at the forefront of stewardship, at the forefront of conservation. We should be at the forefront of doing things in the best possible way to bring flourishing to all of God's creation. We should care about that. We should never care about other aspects of creation over human life, but assuming that we have that right, that human life has been given this glory and this honor, and God has given us authority, and that we get to enjoy this world, but we are also responsible for it, we should be at the forefront of of conservation. We should seek to be doing all of our practices and supporting practices that show the best mindset towards loving and sustaining and caring for this world, because that's our job. That's the responsibility that we've been given. Now, I know for some of y'all, as you think about this, um, you may be looking at your life and be like, that's all well and good, but um, if you knew my life, you would realize that as much as I would love to have clean rivers, I haven't been to a river in years. So that's great that some people want clean rivers. That's not my life. Uh, And so the question may be, well, if we're supposed to care for this world and I look at my small footprint in it, really, what am I supposed to do? How am I a steward of the world. And you and I, sometimes we, what we fall into is we fall prey into thinking that, that we have to have a certain level of impact and a certain level of influence in order to be proactive in the things that God has called us to. Well, if God's called us to do something, he's always given us a context in which we can. The question is, are we acknowledging the context in which we can? What small ways or big ways can I be involved in loving and caring for and stewarding this world? Whether it's animals or whether it's plants or natural resources or other human beings. Like all of creation, we're responsible for stewarding. We're supposed to care from humans all the way down. And our life, every one of our lives intersects with humans and something else. So that's the context in which we've been called to be good stewards. That's part of our role, part of our responsibility. Uh, And when we get our lines crossed and we think, that, that creation, all of creation, from human relationships all the way down to whatever the most microscopic organism may be, when we get our lines crossed and think that God, by God making me a steward, he's actually given me opportunity to leverage all these things for myself, as soon as we become abusers of creation and of relationships, people who are abusing God's creation and abusing God's people are not people who are drawn to praise. They're not all inspired individuals. You and I will never want to say, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name when we've just squeezed something dry, whether it's a person or a place. We will only feel like we still don't have enough. And so you and I have to ask ourselves, like, when I, am I a consumer or am I a steward? Because God calls me to be a steward. And one good way to know that you're actually flourishing in your stewardship is you're just so much more appreciative of the world that God's given you and the opportunities that he's given you. I wish I could say I've had so many mountaintop experiences like I had at the Grand Canyon. I haven't haven't had a ton of those. But David's having one here. When he considers the world that God put him in, 
the opportunities that God gave him that humbles him, and he praises God. The last thing I want us to consider this morning is this, that not only because of my God am I incredibly valued, and so is every other human being, and not only because of my God do I have purpose to love, to serve, to nurture, and to enjoy this world and all the people and creatures in it, but also because of my God, I have hope in a future. And here's what I want us to see. Like, in this psalm, if it weren't for Jesus, this psalm would be a testimony to what could have been but was lost. This is how God created us, but this could have been lost. Our value was sacrificed in the garden. Our purpose was violated in the garden at the fall. But in the garden, God said that wouldn't be the end of the story. And that's why David can say this is still true of him. This is still true of David, who butchered relationships. This is still true of David, who knows the sin and the brokenness that he's left behind. It's true of you and me because it's true of Jesus. That's why this psalm is a psalm of hope for you and for me. We have Jesus, God's son, who came and redeemed our lives, and in so doing, he actually accomplished this ongoing valuation. God can still look at us and say, I value you, and I still want you to be my steward because I intended to actually fulfill all of what I needed in my son. He accomplished it. Which means if we understand that Jesus, and we, we don't have time to read it right now, but if you go to Hebrews chapter 2 and look at verses 5 through 9, the author of Hebrews quotes this psalm, and he says it's about Jesus. That Jesus is the one that has everything under his feet, and he is the one who has stewarded everything well. And because he has, we get to follow him. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will still be stewards, and we will still be valued. And we'll still be flourishing because we will be these people, humbled, awe-inspired, who are worshiping our God, who saw fit to actually rescue us. So we would never be those without value. We would never be those without purpose. We would always be his beloved children who he's given this world to enjoy. I want you to know that God is still mindful of us. He cares for us still. He delights still to honor us and crown us with glory. And even now we are entrusted with his creation to engage this world as his stewards. This psalm is true of you and me because Jesus made it so. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks so much for this time to spend gathered around your word. I thank you for the psalm of David. I thank you for the call that we see in it to worship you and to, to understand our value is, is grounded in who you are and how much you love us to understand that our lives have purpose and meaning here and now because you have given them purpose and meaning, and to know that you will love and care and pursue and lead us into flourishing, not just in this life, but in the life to come. We thank you for loving us. We pray that you will help us to go walk outside on a hot Alabama Sunday afternoon and see things in this world that make us inspired with awe to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name.